We're looking at Isaiah just this month and next. The title of this series, Clear Cut, is a, a play on the imagery that Isaiah uses here at the end of chapter 6 and also in chapter 11 where we'll go next week. You see it there in chapter 6 verse 13 about the stump remaining when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. And then when you go over to chapter 11, as we will next Sunday, chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And that would be Jesus. And he's not just in Isaiah 11. He's also in Isaiah chapter 6. Jesus is, I'll show you. Isaiah, Isaiah foretold Jesus coming and also saw Jesus Although Isaiah lived uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 800 years before Jesus, Isaiah lived in a difficult time, uh, not just because it was uh, primitive as we think of ancient times. Uh, it was difficult because uh, Judah, this is a split kingdom, Isaiah is ministering to Judah. You've got Israel in the north, most of the tribes, and then you've got Judah and Benjamin in the south as one Jerusalem, the capital. And Judah as a kingdom to itself uh, Judah was being threatened by Assyria, modern-day Iran. Uh, King Uzziah, see chapter 6, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, this king of Judah was for the most part a, a strong ruler. You can read about him in Chronicles, did a lot right. But his death, because he was a strong king, Uzziah's death made Judah particularly vulnerable to siege. And that's what the Assyrians were coming to do. They were closing in and and the picture that we get in Isaiah is that Judah is like this forest full of trees. And the Assyrians are going to come in with their swords and, and they're going to mow it down. And that's not just Assyrian aggression. That's actually God allowing it and sending it on his own people as judgment. Uh, throughout history, God has judged his own people as well as other nations. But whereas other nations get totally destroyed in the judgment of God, not so Judah or Israel. Stump imagery is, uh, in a context of judgment, not pretty, but it does signal hope. And by way of analogy, this message from God through Isaiah when he talks about the stump at the end of chapter 6 and, and the stump again in, in chapter 11, the message from God through Isaiah was that, was that things are not going to look pretty. There's been this forest and now there's going to be all these stumps and so that's judgment and judgment is not pretty. The Assyrians are going to do what they do, but there's, uh, there's, uh, uh, there's going to be something growing out of those stumps later on. Now, uh, we live in a very treed city. Uh, just Friday morning, I was uh, having breakfast with some friends, and we were remembering back uh, at, on Hurricane Elvis in 2003. Remember Hurricane Elvis, the straight line winds that we caught? Uh, how many trees fell around here? And some of you uh, suffered that. Uh, trees fell on your home or your cars, uh, and they even fell uh, on people. Deaths uh, happened. And so around a city like Memphis that is so full of of, of big majestic trees, high winds and ice storms every winter. We sort of get a little anxious, you know, is this going to be the year that we get the, the big ice storm? Uh, those are real fears here because we live under a canopy. Now, the only people I've ever heard complain about that are Texans uh, because they like the big wide open country, you know. 
But the rest of us, we, we like uh, our trees, and we don't want to lose them. We wouldn't want to wake up one morning and everything's a stump. And it wouldn't look the same at all. God says to Judah, the southern kingdom, the next chapter in your story is going to be one of destruction. Now, Isaiah speaks for God to the people of Judah, but he also speaks for the people of Judah to God. And we saw it here. Uh, we're going to kind of take the chapter backwards, go to the second part of chapter 6, and then we'll go to the vision that he had. But when you see in chapter 6, verse 11, then I, Isaiah, said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is the, the promised land he's saying this about. It might as well look like a, a forest that's been, that's been clear-cut, mowed down. And yet, you will endure, verse 13, and though a tenth remain in it, a tenth, it will be burned again, judgment continuing, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. And that's significant. More about this when we get to chapter 11 next week as this will build but the significance of the stump as an image, <clears throat> Judah is about to be reduced to a stump. It's this majestic oak, and it's about to be reduced. And, and though it is going to be reduced, under the stump are the roots. And the analogy is the roots are, are living. And 800 years from now, we're, we're calculating this as if we were in Isaiah's time, Isaiah saying 800 years from now and beyond in Jesus' time, there's going to be these oaks of righteousness, he talks about, all the way over in chapter 61. In fact, I'll, I'll read it to you. It's a passage that Jesus actually applied to himself. Uh, you don't have to go there. Just listen. This is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called... Chapter 61, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So you get the stump imagery early on. And then 800 years later, Jesus comes and reads this very passage when he's given the manuscript in the, in the temple to read or the synagogue. And he say, where does he go? He goes to Isaiah 61. And he reads about this. And the, the oaks of righteousness is now possible, this new growth from the stump because of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. So, so what's going on here in Isaiah 6? The gospel according to Isaiah. Jesus preached it because it was exactly what his people needed to hear. And it's also what we need to hear as well. There is a lot here for us living in the 21st century in the Bible Belt. We're between Roman series. Uh, we've just been in uh, Romans chapters 9 through 11. We're going to go back to Romans after this time in Isaiah. We've been splitting Romans into, into five sections, and we've had an in-between section of each one. And because Isaiah was so often quoted, if you're wondering why are we going to Isaiah, well, in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, 
He quotes Isaiah a bunch, and so I thought this was a particularly good time to see this prophet for ourselves, and then we'll go in May uh, back to Romans and, and conclude that study, chapters 12 through 16 there. But where we've turned to this morning, one of the most famous passages in Isaiah as well as uh, the entire Old Testament, I, I want to I jog your memory Stay in Isaiah 6. I know I'm doing a lot of cross-referencing here. I don't often, but I'll bring it back uh, uh, soon here to just Isaiah 6. But in Romans 10, do you remember where he says, how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news? And who is he quoting? Isaiah. In fact, it's Isaiah chapter 52 Verse 7, again, I'm doing a lot of cross-referencing. Don't worry about keeping up. Just listen. Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. We saw it in Romans 10 just a couple of months ago. Who publishes peace, who brings good news, repeated, of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is Isaiah's commission He is sent to preach good news. He is commissioned here in Isaiah 6, where we are, to do this. And Jesus, Isaiah 61, applies the same dynamic to his own ministry. I'm here in the spirit of of Isaiah to preach as Isaiah preached. A lot of cross-references, but just key on a couple of things Good news being the one thing really to key on. Chapter 52, verse 7 of Isaiah, I am sent to preach good news. Chapter 61 of Isaiah that I read earlier, I am sent to preach good news. But here we are in Isaiah 6, way back earlier in the book, and we think, good news? (laughs) What's good about the forest being reduced to stumps? Uh, What's good about people experiencing catastrophic judgment? Good news even then? That's the gospel according to Isaiah. Yes, even especially then. Notice as you're looking now at Isaiah 6, this wow encounter with God. I mean, good night, what this must have been like to see. A superlative spiritual experience like Isaiah had. It's not so much about the experience itself. It was the follow-through, the sending This vision of the Lord in the temple, high and exalted, his train of his robe filling the entire place, the place is shaking, the seraphim are singing and calling out to one another. This audiovisual and incredible thing that he sees unfolding before him. It's not for Isaiah to walk out saying, you will never believe what I saw in there. The vision was for sending him, and it still is. For that purpose, sent out with a message that is good and bad news both, because the gospel speaks of judgment and redemption through resurrection. I want us to see two things in Isaiah 6 today. I want us to see how, in seeing the Lord in the element of glory, as Isaiah sees the Lord in his element of glory, I want us to see how. Isaiah also sees in himself the presence of unceasing sin and the absence of unceasing praise. So if you're taking notes and you want two headings, that's how we're going to put all of this. The presence of unceasing sin, this is what Isaiah sees in himself when he sees the Lord. 
but also in the experience he sees in himself the absence of unceasing praise. And speech is the common denominator in both. So first, of two things, Isaiah, in seeing the Lord as he does, seeing him in his glory, unfiltered, he sees in himself, in seeing the Lord, he sees simultaneously, immediately in himself, the presence of unceasing sin. He says, woe is me. And who is it that he's seeing? You know, it's Jesus. You say, well, how do you know that? Jesus' name isn't here. One more cross-reference, if you will. John chapter 12, verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe, talking about the religious leaders, for again, Isaiah said, this is John making commentary on Jesus' ministry, and he says, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Where is that from? Isaiah 6. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who? Jesus. Isaiah is seeing Jesus in this temple vision. You say, well, that kind of blows my mind. Jesus said the glory that he had, oftentimes in the Gospels, he talked about that he had a glory prior to his coming, a glory he had with the Father prior to his coming, and that he was returning to that. And what Isaiah saw was God the Son in his heavenly glory within the familiarity of the temple. So he, he puts the vision, God puts the vision for Isaiah into a familiar spot, the temple, but it's completely unfamiliar what he's seeing happening there. But Isaiah also sees himself for who he was. As do we when we see, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that when we believe, we see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Though we have not seen him personally. What Isaiah saw vividly is that he was more unholy. Isaiah saw in himself, he was more unholy than he ever knew. He saw that he was actually as naturally unholy as Jesus is naturally holy. What does he see in Isaiah 6? He, he sees that he's as different from Jesus as one can possibly be. The sight of this, the sound, the shaking of the thresholds. The place can't contain the glory of the Lord. It's coming apart. It's sensory overload for this prophet, the seraphim. These six-winged angels, fiery in appearance, calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Back and forth, back and forth. The whole earth is full of his glory. That three-peat, why is there a three-peat of holy, holy, holy? Because in Hebrew, that's the strongest form of the superlative. You say it three times in Hebrew, and you've really emphasized it the most that you can. In seeing the Lord high and lifted up as he did, Isaiah simultaneously, immediately sees in himself the presence of unceasing sin and the absence of unceasing praise. We'll get to that second part in a bit. But again, the common denominator in both is speech. Speaking is happening. Verse 3, they called to one another, the seraphim, and said what they did, this praise. In verse 5, I said, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What is going on? To appear before a naturally holy being in his glorious element is to be exposed. I mean, we can't hide anything from him anyway. 
But notice that Isaiah wasn't made to confess this. It just comes out. Verse 5, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, who hasn't said, make confession. He wasn't made to say this. In fact, note here, there's no shaming of the unholy one in the presence of all these holy ones. They could have absolutely shamed him, but they didn't. In fact, he's atoned for. That's grace. Isaiah does not get shamed for what he knew was true of himself and his people. He got grace, and then he got sent. And that ought to encourage us. Something I try to stay mindful of, and I've kind of reached a a place in in ministry where I get to mentor younger guys in, in ministry who are coming along um, younger than me and, and maybe just starting out. A lot of them are, are planning churches and, and we'll talk. And, and um, I've had a few times where uh, students have gathered in, 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 in a venue and uh, they're, they're seminarians or Bible college students. And, and I've been asked to say, you know, pass along the, 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 the things that, uh, you know, if you could look back and do it over again and, or, or just pass along the things that you really believe and, and what would be helpful for us to know where we are and one of the things I, I, I find myself saying now is, is the truism, I take it as a truism that God does not need me, but he can use me. If I ever write uh, a memoir, not that anybody's going to want to read it, but necessarily, uh, but if I ever did, that might be my opening line. God does not need me, but he can use me. God, God needs none of us. And that should keep us from conceit and arrogance, but he can use any of us. And, and furthermore, he wants to use us. That, that's why Isaiah isn't chased out of the temple. In fact, he's given the vision <laughs> because he's, he, he wants to use him. He wants to send him. He's going to pose the question, and Isaiah's going to say, yeah, I'll, I'll go because he gets this vision of how great God is, but also how gracious God is at the same time. He doesn't shoo him out of his presence. He comes to him. Yeah, yeah, I'll say it. I, I bet uh, there's probably a few people in here, maybe more than a few, who, who probably look at me as a pretty arrogant guy. I get that. And, and, in, and probably because I've hurt or, or failed you in some way, um, you think I am, and, and, and I hope you can forgive me that if I have hurt or failed you in some way. But I, I guess I want you to know that I, I come into this room often when it's empty to pray. I walk around this room a lot and pray. And, and so often in that time, when it's just me and the Lord in this place, and sometimes when it's all of us too in this place, I, I have told the Lord so many times in this room, I am genuinely humbled by this assignment. I know there's dozens of guys that would be better for this task, and that's not false modesty. It's just the reality. But here I am. I got sent to this place. 16 years now that I've been on staff here. And what what I can say more clearly with ongoing ministry experience is now I'm I'm about to launch into my 50s, is that um, God does not need me. I love him more today than I ever have, but I know he doesn't need me. I know that more than I've ever known it, but I also know 
that he can use me. And I want to be used. I want that as I go on. And that God keeps wanting to use us. That keeps us wanting to be used by him and, and wanting to be sent by him even when we are sent, as in Isaiah's case, to um, something that's not an easy assignment. I was reading an article just this morning, and uh, it was in Christianity Today, and it was a, a pastor. I think he served somewhere in Georgia. I'm not exactly sure. I know it's the South. He went to a Southern seminary, not Southern seminary, but a Southern seminary. And he and his neighbor in, in seminary housing, were, I guess, were graduating and he writes about how the neighbor was heading off to California to plant a church and how this guy who was staying in the Bible Belt and pastoring a, a, an older established church, how this guy looked at his neighbor and, and said, uh, well, well, man, you're really going where the action is. I mean, you're, you're, you're the bold one. You're going out to, to California and, and, and people are, are post-Christian out there and, and it's kind of wild. And, and the guy said, you have the much harder assignment staying in the Bible Belt. And this guy said he never forgot that. He said, he said I'm going to California because I don't, I don't want to stay here. <laughs> I want to go out to where there's a big difference between the non-Christian and the Christian, not this Bible Belt amalgam alloy blend where you don't know who's who. All the pagans show up at Easter and Christmas. He said, how do you tell who's who? I mean, look at what Isaiah was sent to. Verse 10. Look at verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. That's a tough assignment. There's another place in Isaiah. We'll come to it in two weeks. In two weeks from this Sunday, we'll be in chapter 29, and we'll look at verse 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth... Think about this in the context of Isaiah 6, Isaiah 29. Because these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, which Jesus quoted too, by the way, Matthew 15. I reference that because it gives us a sense of what Isaiah meant by unclean lips in verse 5. What do you mean by that? I am lost, he says, verse 5, chapter 6. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In view of all this sensory glory before him, Isaiah is undone and he volunteers this confession about himself and his people. It just comes out of him. <laughs> wow, Lord, in me and in those I live among and love, there's the presence of unceasing sin. And Lord, when you exist in this, when you have this all around you all the time, why in the world would you want anything to do with me? And us. He says, Woe is me. Verse 5 there. And a lot of times, uh, you know, we read woe kind of as a threat. <laughs> woe to you. You know, you better get ready. It's coming. And in the chapter before this one, if you take later some time to look at Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah pronounces many woes against Judah for their sins, but, but the sins in himself too. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among people. My, my sin and their sin are a piece, are the same. They're connected. It's not a case of the prophet being better than the people. It's never a case of the preacher being better than the congregation. One of the images used in Scripture to convey personal and corporate sinfulness is uncleanness. Scripture uses a variety of imagery to convey sinfulness in unrighteous and self-righteous expression. 
And, and one of the dominant images is uncleanness. If you worked out in your yard all day in the middle of July and you got sweaty and you sweat out two or three shirts and, and you got dirt all over you and, and then you, you get in and you're so tired that uh, you just say, I'm not taking a shower, I'm just going right to bed. What do the sheets feel like? You've all had the experience, good. You feel sticky and it's <laughs> you got to get clean. And if you're clean and you go to bed in the clean sheets, man, what does that feel like? Oh, it's nice. If you read Isaiah chapter 5 later on, let me just give you a sample since we're right in the vicinity. You'll see the uncleanness is unrighteousness and self-righteousness both. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter unrighteousness. But then Isaiah 5, 21, what are those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight? Self-righteousness is both. We've seen that all through Romans. The woes in that chapter spread out over the, all the people. Everybody gets included under the woes. In chapter 6, the woe gets concentrated, self-directed to the prophet himself, Isaiah, who's saying, seeing you, Lord, as you live, I now see that I live in an absolute abject poverty of being. I don't know the half of my sin in truth. The, the unceasing sin that is true of my culture is also true of me. It's in me. Isaiah knew some things about sin. Of course he did. He was a prophet. He knew some sinful things about himself, as we all do. But it's when he got before the Lord this way that he really knew and he really saw. He knew that profanities of every kind weren't just in residence in everybody else, but they were in him too. This, this idea of profanity, we, we sort of naturally go to it because we think of unclean lips and we think of cussing and all that. But look at it again in verse 5. Woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The idea is, is profane. Uh, that's a word from Latin that means outside the temple. It's literally what profane means. It means outside the temple. Verse 1, where is the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up? The train of the robe fills the what? The temple. And so Isaiah's going, I shouldn't even be here because I'm, I'm a profane man. I live among a profane people. Or outside the temple is our natural habitat. And so we use profane to designate cussing. When we talk about profanity, we think about a dirty mouth kind of a thing. But the word is larger. If something is profane, it literally means outside the temple. It, it means what God is not, what he does not do, who he is not. But now I, I want you to understand this. And the way I'm going to try to help you understand it is because we think of profanity as cussing, let me use the smaller sense of it that we automatically go to in our minds in an effort to expand it and help you see, beginning with what we know, how it actually expands out beyond it. Isaiah is cut to the heart by personal profaneness in himself and his people, but it's more than abuse of language. Now, it is that. We abuse our, our, our tongues all the time. James talks about that in the New Testament. But it's more than this. And, and so to think this out, I, I want to utilize a... A guy named Mark Edmondson. Mark Edmondson is a University of Virginia professor. 
I've read a couple of his books, but he, he, read a, he wrote an article in the LA Times uh, book review three years ago that was entitled On S, the S word. Now, I know this makes people nervous when I give an analogy or an example like this. Please just stay with me, okay? Because there's an insight here that's very valuable. That was the name of his article. And after a couple of paragraphs about how profanity might be useful, Edmondson turns the consideration completely around and writes this. Beyond a certain point, profanity becomes a philosophy. If one's every sentence is peppered and red sauced with profanity, I believe you've revealed something that might in another context be called a worldview. This is what you think life is about. To you, he's talking about people who use profanity in every block of thought, just do it all the time. Not when they're angry or when they're really uh, inflamed over something. It just, it just comes out all the time. It's, it's their adjectives. He says, this is what you think life is about. To you, there is nothing that is exalted. Nothing that ultimately matters. Nothing that contains hopes for uplifting meaning. Now, why would he say that? Edmondson makes no claim to be a Christian, by the way. This is not evangelical prudery. He goes on to say in his article in the L.A. Times Review of Books that the opposite of profaning is praising. He talks about what you find joy and delight in and thanksgiving. Now, this is our second consideration. Just hold the thought for now. We'll talk about how Isaiah sees in himself the absence of unceasing praise. But Mark Edmondson wrote in this article on the S word, that the opposite of profaning is praising, and here's why. Here's the million-dollar insight that Mark Edmondson has. People curse frequently, his words, people curse frequently and increasingly when they are in the process of becoming cynical, even hopeless. Do you see the connection? People curse frequently and increasingly when they are in the process of becoming cynical, even hopeless. Confession. In my own life, when my speech turns ugly and dirty and profane, it's because I'm in pain. And in that pain, rather than turning to praise, I turn to cynicism and hopelessness. And it shows up in the way I speak. You can ask Lynn. Not that I yell at her, I don't. But she's, she's been treated to some of these choice words at points. And she knows that I'm turning cynical, that I need to come back to Scripture. I need to come back to who the Lord is. It's more than just, you know, dirty mouthness. It's, he, he writes, Edmondson says, uh, people who curse reflexively and constantly when the process of losing hope in life says that the process of losing hope has become complete. Woe is me, I'm lost, I am a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What does that mean? It means I live among people profane in all the ways we are because we've lost hope in God. That's the sin behind the sin. We've lost our hope in the Lord. And that's why we lie and we pardon liars and we defend liars and we tune into liars. And we make it all okay. And that's why we cheat and steal. And that's why we hold grudges against one another. And, and that's why we think most, most highly of ourselves and we glorify ourselves because we're cynical We've lost hope. How did we get here? Isaiah puts two and two together in his vision. We're, we're profaning everything, he says. I see it now, our calling, our worship, our example, our witness, our capacity to tell the truth and face the truth about ourselves. We're profaning it all because we have long been in the process of becoming cynical and losing hope in God. And that's why Judah was in decline and ripe for judgment 
And cultural Christianity looks just as bad. We excuse sin with such cheap grace because we don't think it matters. We don't think the sin matters because we don't think the grace matters. We don't think the grace matters because we don't think the sin matters. If we don't care so much anymore, God must not either. Isaiah, here's the seraphim of God calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, unceasing praise. And Isaiah struck in his heart the opposite of profaning everything is right here in front of me. This is the first pure thing I've ever been involved in in my life. I'm with these creatures who profane nothing. All they do is praise the Lord. And yet this Lord wants to have something to do with me, wants to send me? The angels aren't cynical. Why would they be? They're before the Lord's face all the time, the physical presence. They aren't hopeless either. But angels don't have to exercise faith. Angels don't have to develop hope. People do. People in Christ do. That's why Peter says that angels long to look into the things of salvation. It's not their experience. The action that follows on Isaiah is he feels his unholiness intensely. It's a preview of what would happen for us in full. Not through an angel, but the Lord himself. Look at chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. He'd taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. But even so, judgment was still going to come. Stumps where trees had been. But in this action of coming to Isaiah... To atone for his sin, we see in preview what we got in full when the Lord, seated high and exalted on his throne in heavenly glory, surrounded by all the praise he could ever want, set that glory aside to take on human flesh and wrap us in his train. He stepped outside the temple to be treated as if he was guilty of every profanity of God's order and design and will and beauty. Why? Why would he be? He wanted to redeem us. He wants to redeem. He's not a reluctant savior. He's a willing redeemer, and he wanted to show us a future in which we too get to behold his glory. He wanted us in on the praising when we put ourselves into the profaning. He would set his glory aside. The New Testament speaks to this often. To come to us, not to cauterize our lips, this is just a preview in Isaiah 6, but to, but to bleed out for our whole person. He would atone for us himself, God himself would, to take the judgment away that hung over us. Canceling it out and then sending us out in proclamation and praise. Sending us out in this day and time to this day and time. Though a lot of you are scared to death of this day and time. I get it. Verse 8 whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? And I said, well, I, I, I volunteer. Send me. That's still our response of worship. We're going to see it later in Romans 12 when we get there in May. Present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Do you know that implies some difficulty? It's not easy to be a living sacrifice. God still sends. And he sends us to these people we live among in the cultural Christianity that is our Memphis context. Memphis is, is not a post-Christian city like a Seattle or a Baltimore or a Denver. 
Memphis is a city much closer to the city Isaiah was sent to, Jerusalem. In that, Jerusalem was full of people, cynical in their hope, because they'd, they'd had their fill of religion, they'd had their fill of moralism, and yet they stayed in it and they kept doing it. We don't find anything powerful about the church, and yet for social reasons, we stay in it. Memphis is a place where, look at verses 9 and 10, just go through each line. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. That's Memphis. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. That's Memphis. Make the heart of this people dull. That's Memphis. Their ears heavy. That's Memphis. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. How much gospel do you need to hear? Over and over and over again. Our churches are full. There's a church on every corner in this city. Memphis is a place full of trees, but it doesn't know the Lord of the stump. If you will echo Isaiah, if you will say as Isaiah said, Lord, send me. Don't just let me live here, Lord, in this place, but send me to my neighbors and my classmates and I, my associates. If you say that, get ready to see the cynicism. Because whereas in a post-Christian context, if you're in a post-Christian city like a Seattle, you see a lot of confusion about life. You see people trying to redefine gender and make it work. You see people uh, dabbling in all these different religions and trying to make it work. It, it's just, it, and, and we look at that and we go, that's crazy. But we're, we're looking at it from down here in a cultural Christianity. And, and what you find in a post-Christian context, a lot of confusion about life. In cultural Christian contexts like ours, you see a lot of cynicism about life and dashed hope or filling up our hopes with something far less. You see agitation with God. I, I try to, this is cultural. I try to tell young people whenever I get a chance to talk with them if we're in particularly visiting about belief and, and sometimes young people are struggling and, and I try to be really empathetic and sensitive to that. And I found through the years young people who are, who are saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I got to college and this just didn't seem real anymore and, and it's my parents and my grandparents thing and, and I'm moving away from it. And, and I try to ask them gently and carefully if they might consider that, that when they're giving up on their faith or they're just choosing to go with the flow of, of, of darkness, I tell them what you've probably seen and are reacting to is cultural Christianity. It is not Jesus Christ. There is a difference. Don't reject Christ because you don't like the culture that forms around him. I say you need to see Jesus. You need to get in the Gospels and see the Lord Jesus, not as an assignment from school, you need to get in the Gospels and read about your Lord and then go to the Psalms and read about what they were hoping for and expressing. Cultural Christianity doesn't do that. When you're sent to Memphis, you'll find the cynicism about who God is and what God can do is thick because hopes are dashed. People are tired of religion and they're tired of moralism and they're tired of, of, of proliferation of churches that are just marketing some new little angle to them. They want an experience, an encounter with God. It doesn't have to look like Isaiah 6, but it's got to reach the heart and the mind. It's got to reach the whole person. We have never been more in charge of our world and yet felt so out of control. Cultural Christianity, it makes all of us really nice people to be around, but it is otherwise awful. 
because it, it props up a false gospel that does not save. Jesus did not let Isaiah stay there in his throne room and bask in the glory of getting such a vision. That will come later for all of us, but for now he sent him out. We too, if we know him, the people of God, our people sent. Whether we've had incredible experiences with God or not, that doesn't matter. You've been given an incredible message. Incredible message keys on resurrection because the resurrection is true. God can do anything he wants and can ask us to do anything he wants. Would you bow with me for a few moments? We're a little over time. If somebody would tell the nursery, appreciate that. I want to take just a minute to ask you just to pray with me quietly. This is your time just to reflect on what you heard. And if you need to make confession, this is a good time to do it. If you need to ask the Lord, send me, Lord, to where I am, to be more fully engaged for you where I am. Confront me with my unrighteousness and my self-righteousness. Show me what's hidden. Show me where I am not who you've called me to be. This is the moment we're going to take to do that. Lord, hear our prayers, and thank you that we can now sing about your holiness as those who've been brought in, that you appeared to us, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You appeared to us in grace, and you will change us, and you will send us, and you are so patient with us and good to us. Thank you. Thank you for all the glories of this place where Isaiah got to stand. But thank you, Lord, that you didn't keep him there. You sent him out. Because the work that has to be done is for now. And the glory comes later when we're freed from this work and this body of suffering and all the things around us that we don't like. Lord, help us to maximize the time as we have it. Make us more apostolic. Those were men who who didn't just think deeply about the gospel. They spoke it. They talked about the resurrection. They made that the issue. Lord, help us to see that. Because in seeing that, we're seeing your holiness. In seeing that, we're seeing your goodness. And all these other things that people want to talk to us about, and what do you think about this, and how come Christians are against that? Lord, help us zero in on what matters. If the resurrection happened, everything is different. And Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted. And we thank you that we get to praise you and sing these words. In Christ's name, amen.